For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, with a hello to everyone who lives someplace where they say it's warming faster than the global average. Which wouldn't be hard, since the top story in this week's Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, and in this readout video based on it, is about the lack of end of winter as we know it. You know that business where children won't know what snow is? Well, in Ottawa they won't, unless their memories stretch way back to late April. But in Colorado they were skiing into May. As the Vail Daily reported blandly, quote, Vail ended its longest season on record in its usual closing day fashion on Sunday, with hundreds of skiers and snowboarders celebrating on top of the mountain. And even though it was a rare May closing, the weather behaved more like March, with wind and snow creating cold conditions on the slopes, end quote. The longest season on record. Wow. If it had been the shortest season on record, it would have been climate. But when it's the longest, with cold and snow, it's just weather and an opportunity for some fashion statements that make us wish winter really had ended, depending what it is that these people wear to the beach. And we wish we could afford to go to the beach. But while you've also heard that we deniers have all the money, here at CDN we're continually astounded at the sums of money that governments lavish on anyone claiming to care about the climate crisis. Even tangentially. One $2.2 billion Canadian government low-carbon economy fund is throwing some of it at the often dismal housing on First Nations reserves, while a separate $1.7 billion program is hurling $5 million gobs of it into, quote, expansion of zero-emission vehicle charging infrastructure and hydrogen refueling stations, end quote, trying to incentivize EV purchases because apparently consumers are too dumb to realize what a great opportunity they are, unlike those savvy folks in government. Even a federal-provincial initiative to revitalize the Glenbow Museum is meant to stop climate change, in case you didn't know it was coming from there. So, it would take a real churl to observe that simultaneously, a House of Commons committee recommended that the highly toted $35 billion Canadian Infrastructure Bank that was launched in 2017 be shut down because it did so little that it barely even managed to waste money. Apparently, not every governmental good intention translates smoothly into real-world benefits even on a file you'd think was relatively simple, like building better houses for Aboriginals. You might accuse governments of building castles in the air, but actually those fancy things up there are clouds. And as Charles Blaisdell wrote recently on What's Up With That, quote, the Earth's cloud cover has long been an important puzzle in climate change, end quote. Indeed, one reason computer models and alarmists put so much emphasis on CO2 is that the most important greenhouse gas, and this point really is settled science, is dihydrogen monoxide, but that stuff is considerably harder to model. And it's also considerably harder to blame on humans, which spoils the fun. Though actually somebody found a way. It's possible, Blaisdell says, that the apparent decline in cloud cover over the last century, which might account for nearly all of the observed warming, could be the result of our converting forest to farmland to asphalt jungle, and in the process, reducing the amount of humidity in the warmer air that, when it meets cold air, leads to clouds. If so, and bear in mind that this isn't settled science, it's the sort of theory that scientists investigate when they're not in a dogmatic stampede, you do get to blame it on people and on prosperity. But on the downside, you don't get to blame it on CO2, which is going to be an embarrassing climb down from those sky castles at this point. Now, speaking of white things, a fairly recent study out of Field Museum via the Journal of Animal Ecology says the climate crisis must be upon us because some birds in the American Midwest are laying eggs earlier than they did in Grover Cleveland's day. 
And of course, when animals are observed not to change their behavior in response to climate change, it's bad because it shows they can't adapt quickly enough to global warming. But if they do change their behavior and adapt successfully, it's also bad because, ah, climate change. So, birds laying earlier with a longer warm season for the fledglings to hatch, grow and take wing is obviously bad. Unless you're a bird. The press release begins, Spring is in the air, which we, being grouches, would ban along with Tis the season at a different time of year. But tis always the season for loaded language like, quote, about a third of the bird species nesting in Chicago have moved their egg-laying up by an average of 25 days. And as far as the researchers can tell, the culprit in this shift is climate change, end quote. Culprit, not cause. And never mind that metropolitan Chicago has grown from 112,000 people in 1860 to 8.9 million in 2021. Nope, it must be climate change namely the trend in average spring and summer temperatures in Illinois, which from 1895 to the present works out to a whole 0.6 degrees Celsius per century, or 1 degree Fahrenheit, if you live there. Still, to the researcher with a hammer, everything looks like a thermometer. Quote, Given that the climate crisis has dramatically affected so many aspects of biology, the researchers looked to rising temperatures as a potential explanation for the earlier nesting, end quote. Which again assumes that it being warm enough for babies in, say, March instead of April is the chirp of doom. But here's something else strange. Quote, Among the 72 species for which historical and modern data were available in the Chicagoland region, about a third have been nesting earlier and earlier, end quote. Which could also be spun as two-thirds of the birds were doing nothing different in response to trivial changes. But how scary is that headline? Whereas, quote, The changes in temperature are seemingly small, just a few degrees, but these little changes translate to different plants blooming and insects emerging, things that could affect the food available for birds, end quote. Yeah, it could. More CO2 could promote more plant growth and there'd be more food. Which actually sounds good if you're a hungry baby bird or parent of same. <laughs> but it's not. According to the lead author, quote, These changes in nesting dates might result in them competing for food and resources in a way that they didn't used to, end quote. Well, sure, it might. But on the whole, a greater abundance of food is more likely to reduce competition. Try scrounging a meal in the Arctic and see what you mean. Say, is that thing hunting for that same food a polar bear? And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Or at least it should be. Because if you want us to keep annoying the right people with our newsletters and our videos, you, our regular viewers, need to step up with a one-time or monthly contribution. I'm not talking a lot of money, unless you're, like, extra rich. The price of a cup of coffee a month. That's what we need from the 10,000 or so people who tune in weekly. If you do that, the video and the newsletter will keep bringing sanity to the climate debate and to you. And now, back to me. A related persistent piece of odd reasoning about global warming is that although world food production has been soaring for decades, agriculture is about to collapse due to climate change. Plants will wither and die off, or if they don't, they'll become less nutritious and they'll taste worse. But Heather exner Pirot of the McDonald-Laurier Institute has finally shown a strong and important connection between climate change and hunger. Yeah, unfortunately, it's that government climate policies undertaken in an economically and scientifically illiterate panic are driving up the cost of crucial inputs to our food production system like, what's that stuff called? Fuel, and also fertilizer. As Exner Pirro notes, the Russian invasion of Ukraine isn't helping because both nations are major producers, not just of wheat for export, but also of fertilizer and fertilizer feedstock. But the big problem, she notes, quote, energy costs will surpass 13% of global GDP this year, the highest proportion in modern times. 
By comparison, it was less than 4% of global GDP in 2020 and 6.5% in 2021, end quote. So, do not forget, expensive energy is deliberate government policy in Canada and in whatever rhetorically overheated spot you live. Now, she adds, quote, because over 80% of global primary energy demand is met by coal, oil, and natural gas, the cost of developing low-carbon sources, the labor, raw materials, manufacturing, and transportation costs needed to implement a transition, have also risen, end quote. Oh, darn, this transition's hard. Still, we probably shouldn't worry since we're all going to die. In this case, because NBC shrieks, quote, ocean life projected to die off in mass extinction if emissions remain high, end quote. No ifs, ands, or buts there, except for the cloud of could and many and if in the fine print. But who reads that stuff when, quote, the new models suggest Earth could approach Permian levels of marine extinction by 2300 if emissions continue to increase, end quote. Do we smell RCP 8.5? Why, yes, we do. The article in Science is paywalled, but the abstract contains the telltale phrase, quote, business as usual, global temperature increases, end quote, and we know what that means. The study itself actually starts, quote, global warming threatens marine biota with losses of unknown severity, end quote. Yeah, unknown, not least because, as we've pointed out repeatedly, the Earth was considerably warmer for most of the past than it is now. Nevertheless, NBC hyperventilates, quote, the new analysis applies what the research team previously learned about the great dying 252 million years ago when more than two-thirds of all marine life in the Permian period went extinct, as well as other historic extinctions, to today's climate projections. Under a high-emission scenario, the results were disturbing, end quote. The rhetoric certainly is. NBC also says, quote, the analysis is a reminder that the pace of change on Earth today may be comparable to the most extreme events in history, end quote. Bosh! We think there have been five mass extinctions since the Cambrian explosion of multicelled life. The Ordovician Silurian around 450 to 440 million years ago, the late Devonian around 375 to 360, the most devastating one, the Permian-Triassic at 252, the Triassic-Jurassic at the unusually precise 201.3 million years ago mark, and the most famous, the Cretaceous-Paleogene that finished off the non-avian dinosaurs around 66 million years ago. But in that last one, for instance, a giant asteroid wiped out an estimated 75% of all species and half of all genera on the Earth in about three years. In case NBC didn't notice, neither the asteroid nor the mass extinction happened between 2019-2022, and not even Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion expect either one by 2025. Oh, and by the way, like good climate scientists, we tested our RCP 8.5 hypothesis by peering behind the paywall, and sure enough, there it lurks in figure one of the paper. Our prediction, unfortunately, came true. Oh, speaking of having money to travel to beaches, this week we made another CDN by the Sea virtual visit, this time to Adelaide, Australia, where the press would have you believe that climate change is bringing non-stop droughts and raging forest fire infernos. Luckily, it's not. But if it were, and if the locals were waiting for the seas to rise and put out the forest fires, they'd be waiting a long time, because it just over 2.5 millimeters a year, it'll take about 390 years to go up one meter. Worse, sea levels at Adelaide actually peaked in 2013, and then they subsided, so that the level in 2019 was almost identical to 1981, which could just be random fluctuation, but certainly isn't a relentless, accelerating rise of doom. In this week's newsletter, we also look at a new study from the Grantham Institute in the UK that finds that cold kills far more people than heat even in hot countries, and that while heat deaths generally occur among people likely to die soon anyway, cold deaths steal decades of life. 
Remarkably, only extreme heat is associated with higher mortality even in Mexico, the subject of the study, whereas even mild cold spells are deadly there, and extreme cold, that's below 12 degrees Celsius, which we in Canada call summer, is over three times deadlier than extreme heat. Finally, in our weekly visit to co2science.org, we bring you the ever-popular peat bog. Supposedly, rising CO2 is going to turn these famous carbon sinks into spewing volcanoes of greenhouse gases. But a 2018 paper with the racy title Interacting Effects of Elevated Atmospheric CO2 and Hydrology on the Growth and Carbon Sequestration of Sphagnum Moss, quote, says that higher CO2 boosts moss growth and water absorption instead of stifling it. It's that plant food thing again. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know snow from moss.